Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Mary Jett, founder and CEO of Tracklight, a company that provides businesses, entrepreneurs, and inventors with automation software tools and resources to help them identify business risks and legal needs. Mary's professional journey began in finance, where she learned the basics of examining systems and processes. While working as a CFO, she oversaw her company's merger and learned more about contracts, which inspired her to pursue law. During law school, she came up with the idea for Tracklight and decided to return to the business world after earning her JD. In addition to her role at Tracklight, she's an advisory board member at Integra Ledger, a digital trust technology infrastructure based on enterprise blockchain technology. She's also an advisory board member of Rights Ledger, a universal ledger focused on digital ownership management tracking, rights management, and global monetization using blockchain. In our conversation, Mary discusses attending law school with a business background, making the leap to entrepreneurship, and the usefulness of blockchain. Thank you for tuning in. Mary, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Stephen. I am well, and thank you for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. As I said, I appreciate you taking the time. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, your personal journey, your your personal professional journey before we begin to talk about Tracklight and some of the cool things specifically you're doing. Sure. So I started as a financial auditor in Canada and uh, morphed into a consultant for what was then Price Waterhouse and. At that point was my first exposure to key performance indicators. So that was, I don't want to say exactly what year, but it was. <laughs> it was, was a little in, bit ago. Yeah, it was a little bit ago. And that was actually in the education sector. When I was with Pricewaterhouse, we did a lot of work for a very large Canadian college. And I actually went off there and I was the VP finance and administration there using my Canadian CA, which is now called a CPA also. And that was a really interesting foray into a couple of things. First of all, I was there during Y2K. And oh, Y2K. <laughs> I remember that. The world was going to come to an end, wasn't it? Yes, for different reasons than lately. So that was Y2K. I was responsible for IT, HR. At one point, I was responsible for international education and then, of course, finance. And I was also responsible for the institutional research. So I've always had this tie to data and information. As an auditor, you're trained to look at systems and processes. And then as a consultant, I did process reengineering. And the reason I'm bringing you back to last century is because that laid the foundation for almost everything I've done. And along the many years in between, I um, have spent my career walking away from the main things that I've been doing, and then I end up getting pushed back. So it's, it's really interesting, but I am not one of those people who set out to say, okay, I'm going to be an accountant and I'm going to be a partner in a, you know, a big, what was then the big eight now the big four, I never set out with that kind of goal. So I went from the college to a small joint venture where I was the CFO. And this was now we're now we're into the century. And uh, so in the early 2000s, we did 
a was an on-premises, on-prem learning management system for process operators. And at that point was when I started doing what the business world talks about as commercial work. So I, as a CFO, was negotiating with companies and I ended up running the group and we were merged into, and I was responsible for merging us into a large engineering company at the time, AMAC. And, you know, I learned so many things, but it was really interesting going and meeting with the likes of BP and Shell and all of these folks and then saying to them, you know, I, 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 we can't sign this standard services contract. We need some changes here. So I'd always been interested in the law. And when I was in Canada, I thought about becoming a tax lawyer, but, and then an entertainment lawyer, but that was like a, during the Ally McBeal kind of phase. Um, Everybody wanted to be an entertainment lawyer <laughs> at some point in their career, didn't they? Yes. So I ended up, um, you know, I worked at one of Canada's largest law firms as a director of finance, um, Faskin. And that was for a year after my really cool job running that learning management, which is called uh, at the time AMAC Training and Development. It still exists, but now it's cloud-based and it's owned by a company called Wood. And that was a really cool job, but went all over the world and I had small kids. So it didn't work. Ended up moving to Phoenix worked back with AMAC, but in a different different division, again, with the engineering, um, it was uh, AMAC infrastructure. And then that division was being merged with another division, and I would have had to leave Phoenix. So I had established my kids there. And that's when I went back to law school. And relying so, on, on okay, my... Okay, well, <laughs> well, hang on, hang on. So what was that decision like? Because you'd had a long career varied experience you've just traced for us in the business. You're very successful. And I know you wanted to be Allie McBeal, <laughs> but, but that that's a big decision to go to a three-year law school. Right. So the decision, it was a big decision, but the I only applied to Arizona State. Um, it was at the time called Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And it was you know, literally in my backyard, 10 minutes away. I had teenagers so I was in my 40s at the time, and I thought I would make a great white-collar crime prosecutor. And uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that or like an FBI-type profiler, only to find out the FBI cuts you off at the age of 39, which was rather depressing to find out after I was already in law school at an FBI information session. And <laughs> so, so anyways, I was in law school and I kept trying to get away from the business side. So I took environmental law uh, classes. I took an environmental law certificate. But at one point, I did a session where it was a, um, they call it a clinic. But it's like a practicum. So you get to practice as a lawyer. I was in the technology ventures clinic and, you know, they, they started, it was a joint program with an MBA. So you were paired with students who were business students and law students in groups. And you've been to law school. Lawyers don't work well in groups. So I was used to. Work. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was used to working in groups. So it was a fun, a fun experience. But then I realized, wait a second, like, I'm good at this. It's like consulting. So I thought to myself, why am I running away from business trying to be in 
sustainability or, or something like that, doing environmental law, because my goal was to go work in house. And then I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Anyways, I graduated from law school in December of 2010. And it was not a good time for the world and for lawyers. That's a tough time. Let's hold for a second. What was it like being in law school? You, you'd had a long career in business. And I know you just told us about sort of the epiphany of, of stopping running away from your business career. But you had a different background, I suspect, than most other law students, both in terms of your experience and the length of your experience. What was that like? What was law school like for someone who'd had a, a good career in business in the real world? It was uh, shocking that I did terrible on some of my courses, like contracts. You'd think, well, you'd think, wait a minute, what? <laughs> you'd think that I would be great at it, given that I'd gone off and negotiated with some of the, you know, largest companies on the planet. But this is was my epiphany about some of the coursework that you do, particularly in one L. It's not reality. It's more like here's a black letter law and you really aren't learning to apply it to a real situation. And frankly, as an accountant, even when I wrote the bar exam, which didn't happen until 2018, which is another story. Even when I wrote the bar exam, I was irritated by some of the numbers questions on them because there was no right answer, in my opinion. So being an accountant, being a CPA, because I'd also in 2007, when I was working down there, I did the reciprocity for the US CPA because I was working for a publicly traded company. It really, it set me back on contracts and things like that. The ability to have juggled two kids and then I had two stepkids teenagers and all of that, that helped me in school. Being planful, being able to wade through a lot of material, that was helpful. You know, just balancing a diverse, you know, set of courses and everything that I could use. But my actual business helped me really only with the international business course I took, one of the environmental seminars where we kind of had to argue for, I had to play Cesar Chavez in like a little mock thing, um, <laughs> which was... Well, that must have been interesting. It was very interesting. So it helped me there, but it, it really hurt me in the in the 1L um, side of things. And then the technology venture clinic, which that plus I took the intersection of IP, intellectual property and business. It was an, a short course but there we had to do an intellectual property audit. And it really helped me my background with that. And that was actually the genesis for Tracklight. I was going to say that must have been with the, the spark for Tracklight because you started Tracklight basically a year after you got out of law school. Yeah. Well, I had the idea the beginning of 2010 when I was still in law school. And then so in the summers, my husband works in the mining industry, did then and still does. And so he was in Australia when I was in law school. So I didn't clerk. I didn't do because my path was going to be I thought I'd go work in sustainability in the mining industry, really in Australia. But that all changed with the global financial crisis. Uh, a lot of stuff did. Yes, a lot of stuff did. Exactly. So I volunteered in, in an elder law clinic in Australia. I didn't do those typical summer clerkships. And so in the summer of 2010, I did a lot of research into 
how do small businesses deal with their intellectual property? And the short answer was they all think they don't have any unless they don't have a patent. So that was kind of what I started doing. I came out of law school. I decided not to take sit for the Arizona bar, which at that time wasn't part of the uniform bar. So that would have been the February 2011. And I had gone off to work for one of my classmates. Her dad was a serial entrepreneur in Phoenix. So I went off to work for him. And we were part of this uh, online electronics recycling platform. So it was software, it was environmental. And so I was there for just about a year. And then I was kind of figuring out track light on the side. And this was like pre-AWS and all those other things. So it would have been 2011, 2012 kind of time frame. And then this is now funny. In 2012 or 2013, about a decade ago, I said to my husband, so I just need a year and then I'll work on this track light thing. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh (laughs) <laughs> so we did start Tracklight. I raised money uh, in 2013, raised $450,000, brought in a team. We built it. And it is a way of assessing risk and um, assessing IP. We started focused on IP and then morphed it to be larger for small and medium-sized businesses. And we built it up. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Define the problem that Tracklight solves. So at startups, inventors, and small businesses often truck along or start their business and they miss some of the key foundational steps. They either don't protect their trade secrets, they don't register their trademarks. And that's the initial problem that we solve. But it became a wider problem that Small businesses, they love all the fun part of being an entrepreneur, but don't focus on the boring details. So the software, it's a self-guided assessment. So it's like a legal health checkup for your business. And then it's an ongoing platform. It gives you, tells you kind of what you should be doing, provides a roadmap, gives you an overall assessment. So that's the business piece. And along the way, we switched from selling directly to businesses to partnership models. And we, over the years, we had partnerships with Legal Shield, Paychecks, et cetera. And over the years, we developed a personal version that's really not out there in the world. And at this point, we have not focused on generating a bunch of customers. We, we have some specific subdomain or like custom versions, applications for lawyers. But we went through a whole phase of selling to lawyers, which was not fun. (laughs) A learning experience. (laughs) Um, So now at this point, Tracklight, we have the intellectual property and we are in the process of finding a home for the software within a bigger software. So that's what we're doing at this point with Tracklight. So you raise the money and build a team. Was this the first business you'd started? Uh, Technically, no. I started a few little things along the way. Um, But while I started Tracklight, then Jules Miller and I also started Evolve Law, which was an accidental business. (laughs) Why the turned entrepreneur? Was it your business background that sort of gave you the grounding to take this leap? Because it's a, it's another leap. It is a leap. 
And I think part of it was just because it was this idea and I felt so strongly and still do that business is really I see so many people and you can just look at the figures. There's millions of people in this country that operate whatever their business is without any protection of an LLC or any kind of legal entity. And they, even if they do get an LLC, they never open a bank account and they commingle their money and they actually put themselves at risk and operate without insurance. People don't file taxes. So it's like these simple little things. If somebody would have just told some of these people who've had bad experiences in advance what they needed to do. So I thought, okay, this is a really cool idea. And in my mind, I thought, okay, this will be like three years, five tops. But what happened was along the way, we had Evolve Law and we had these other things. The main reason I was able to do it is because my husband was very supportive and I basically did other things along the way did Evolve Law. I worked in Saudi Arabia in 2019 and 2020. It was supposed to be for three years. And we were also working on an exit for Tracklight in 2019 that, again, got affected by COVID like so many other things. So, you know, it was it was family support, which I still have. This idea that it doesn't have to be that hard to start a business, but it shouldn't be so easy by skipping all these steps because it will come back to bite you. It's part of the access to justice problem in the country, isn't it? Because these these are not necessarily people who are qualified for legal aid, but they're underserved people who can't afford to walk into a lawyer's office or don't have access to lawyers. Yes. And it's people who, you know, some of the clients are businesses that have the money to do it and they just haven't taken the time to set up properly. We also have other products which include, you know, the idea of if you think you might have a patent, we have a patentability, we have a due diligence type vault that we created. So it wasn't just aimed at folks who don't know better, but certainly the personal legal checkup that we created is aimed at people who have no idea what their legal issues are or they don't know that a lawyer might be able to help them. And a lawyer doesn't have to be a 600 to $900 an hour lawyer. There's lots of alternatives, particularly in Arizona. Um, so I'm a lawyer in both Arizona and Washington State. And another thing I did <laughs> during COVID was opened up a law firm called Singular Law, and it's under the Arizona's alternate business structure. I've since exited that because I I live now only in Washington state. I used to split my time. And so we used to spend some time in Arizona, which made more sense. But the alternate business structure and the paraprofessionals in Arizona are making a difference with the access to justice. It's an interesting experiment Arizona is doing in Utah and some other states as well. That's It's interesting here you say it's actually made a difference. I think it's moving the needle, not necessarily just the ABS side of it, but the paraprofessionals. And that's part of my beef with being a lawyer. And part of my beef is with the ABA and the seeming protectionism. Let's not have any non-lawyers involved. And part of that is because I did work for one of Canada's largest law firms and I was a director of finance. And certainly I was 
the woman I work for, who was the managing partner, was one of my top two bosses that I've had in my career. And she was always very clear, the running of a, of a business, which the law firm is, is best served by people who are not lawyers and not the business lawyers. I sat with the business lawyers. So I would talk to them about tax issues or things that I didn't necessarily know about for the partnership. But certainly, I was in charge of finance and IT. I had nothing to do with the delivery of legal services. And I don't understand. It wouldn't have made any difference whether I owned a portion of the law firm or not. And in the time that I owned a piece of singular law and my partner, who's not a lawyer, he never told me how to deliver legal services or any of our of counsel. So the whole thing to me is, in a word, it's ridiculous, the stance. I just fail to understand why the profession thinks that allowing people to own a part will somehow impact their professional judgment. It's kind of like more of a reflection on the person who's protesting. A little paternalistic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about two things. Tell me about Evolve Law and tell me about Integra Ledger. Okay. So Evolve Law, which I think they changed the name to Evolve the Law. Jules Miller, myself, Ned Gagnon, and one other individual whose name is just escaping me, which is terrible. The four of us did trial event in New York City where instead of just talking about things or having like demos on the kind of the side, we got up on the stage and talked about what our software did and how it could help lawyers and did like a live demo and did it quickly. And that was the beginning of Evolve Law. We started off as sort of as a marketing type. It wasn't even a company. It was just a marketing type effort. And we evolved it pun intended, to a legal innovation group. Um, Jules and I ended up doing, we did consulting for Thomson Reuters in the US. I did consulting for them in Canada. We put on events in multiple countries all over the place and really got people excited about using not just technology, but innovation. However, (laughs) it turned into almost a full-time job for me with with no salary. Oh, that's so not was, good. <laughs> so it was really not great. I did, through meeting Thompson Reuters, I, I ended up, they asked me to write a book on small law KPIs, which I did. So it was a wonderful experience, met lots of really cool people. And I saw that they still run the startup alley at the ABA tech show. And so that was our idea from probably seven years ago now. So sold that in, entered into selling it in 2017. And then 2018 is when I took the Washington State Bar. So that was seven years after I was supposed to. And that I would not advise. Um, (laughs) I would think you've been away from it for a while. That's a little rusty and test taking, I would think. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Um, My son was uh, at the time, doing his computer engineering degree. So I would study. Uh, I was down in Phoenix for a couple of months doing this. And then I came up and wrote it in Washington State. But he is very good at the different degrees of murder because we would <laughs> have oh. discussions about it. And then in a weird way, you know how they give you the breakdown for your for your bar score? Again, contracts, super low, criminal law, 99th 
percentile or whatever it was. It was just like, it's just so ridiculous. So I did pass and I passed with enough to, I could have been a lawyer in any state. I did some outside in-house counsel work and it just came back to the same thing. I like working in business using my skills from being an accountant. Thinking like a lawyer, I think is a good thing, but you have to be able to turn it on and off. Right. And uh, otherwise your your family doesn't like being cross-examined, et cetera. But I did Integra Ledger. I met a bunch of people through Evolve Law who asked me to be involved in their companies. So there's three companies that I've been a board advisor or advisor over the past few years. One of them is Rights Ledger, which was a company that was in Los Angeles that dealt with intellectual property rights. They've started using blockchain for licensing films and getting people paid around the world. And they're now based in Malta and Malaysia. And and so that's really interesting. And I'm still active with that. And then Integra Ledger is a blockchain And that's around, you know, just basically contracts and using blockchain for it. And David Fisher, who's the CEO, has persevered. I think he's been at it for like six years, something like that. I think I've been involved with it since I think 2015. And then the other one was a was a digital marketing agency. And I'm not involved with that anymore. So on the blockchain technology, it's interesting to me. I mean, all the talk now is about generative AI, chat GPT, and how the world is going to change and how lawyers are going to change. I remember similar, perhaps not quite the level of hype, but similar hype over blockchain technology. And that sort of went away for a while. What's the impact of blockchain technology on the business world? It seems like it's settled into a a pattern of, of people finding actual uses for it as opposed to hyping how much it's going to affect the change of everything. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's in the kind of blockchain and then the crypto world, which we we don't have to talk about that very much. But there's this idea that you have your securities token that clearly the week this is being recorded is the week that the SEC has gone after Binance and Coinbase. And, you know, there's all of that. But what the two that I'm involved with are focused really on actually doing something. So an a utility token or a utilitarian type application. Integra Ledger isn't involved in the crypto world. They're really just basically trying to put an identifier on a contract. So then it doesn't matter what contract management system you're using, what systems you're using, it can be recognized anywhere in the world. And so it's a really interesting technology. It's it's early days. They have a lot of large law firms, insurance companies, I believe some accounting firms. So all of that is public information that's that's on their website. So that's interesting. And then with Rights Ledger, they've got a lot of licensing deals where the idea is that they can use, they reward people for watching using their um, token and they have a whole um, back back end technology for making sure that when people are licensing their films, et cetera, that they're actually getting compensated. So uh, it's okay. it's very it's very interesting. Generative AI is having its heyday and that's it's all good. I saw something funny on LinkedIn about 
is ChatGPT going to build this building? So <laughs> <laughs> there's that. There's um, that. Probably not. Not at this point, unless they're going to start sending robots out. So, I mean, I'm, I'm one of these people, I stand top of what's happening, but I, you know, maybe it's just because as I get older, I look at these things as what's the opportunity and what's the risk. And that's, again, like the thinking like a lawyer. I have a lot of lawyer friends who only see risks and that's not helpful. I've been personally spending a lot of time upskilling on the ESG side of things, you know, building on my environmental and sustainability work I did in law school. It's just that's another area, particularly in the US, which is kind of top. If you look at anything to do with investing, you're going to see ESG. And included in there is cybersecurity and AI. So I've been spending some time looking at these issues. I think there are lots of opportunities for companies that want to use AI in a smart way. I was just listening to something around using AI to combat anti-corruption, money laundering, so there's lots of good uses, not just cheating on your uh, your term paper, which right. seems to be getting a lot of press. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that your points will we'll settle down at some point from the wild swings on the pendulum from it's the best thing ever and it's going to eliminate lawyers. And isn't that a wonderful thing to it's the worst thing ever. It makes up cases. It makes up information. And we'll reach a point, I think, where. There's a balance in there. Your, your point's the right one. It can really enhance productivity. It can really augment what people are doing and, and strengthen their ability to deliver quality legal services. But you have to balance that against the, the things it can't do or doesn't do well or makes up. We'll hit that balance somewhere, but we're not there yet. Right. And early days, I went on and kind of asked some questions, trying to get it to do something legal and basically came back, I'm not sure which version this was, came back and said, I can't do that. That's legal. I'm not going to do that for you. So very quickly, there were some things that were done to make sure that, you know, if you asked it to actually generate X, Y, or Z. But then I saw, yeah, I think it was this morning or yesterday, something about it had made up a case and somebody is now going to sue open, you know, <sighs> anyways. So it's the wild, wild west at this point. It is. It is. It's, it's like the ABSs. It's like when Utah came out with their sandbox and Arizona came out with their, you know, with theirs, which is not a sandbox, which is a kind of a little pet peeve of mine. People think, Oh, Arizona, it's a, it's just, uh, it's, it's a sandbox. And it's like, no, like when we applied for our license, which singular law still has, it's a permanent license. All you have to do is keep going each year. So it's not an experiment, but you'd think that some of the comments that were received when we did, Alan Rodriguez and I, my partner at the time, we did a Clio presentation and it was a virtual presentation in 2021, I believe. And people wrote these comments, just like unbelievably negative lawyers writing these comments. And it's I don't understand. It's the same kind of reaction some lawyers are having to AI thinking, oh, well, it's just going to, you know, we, we need to attack it instead of trying to figure out what are its limitations, what are the bookend, what it can and cannot do, and then use it for good. Right. It doesn't seem 
<laughs> like rocket science. It seems difficult for lawyers to do that, though, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mary, we, we've run a bit over our time. Thank you so much for indulging me. I've enjoyed the conversation. You're doing some really interesting things. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, it was fun to revisit some of the past, even the distant <laughs> past. <laughs> well, it's not too distant. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.